Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, send your Holy Spirit upon us. Use and overrule my words and all our thoughts so that your word alone may be spoken and your word alone heard through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. It's such a joy for my wife Meg and me to be back with you all on this very special day as Jamie is instituted as your rector. I am thrilled by God's call of Jamie. Thrilled. And I know you are praying earnestly for him as he assumes the mantle of leadership of this wonderful church family. I do want to say a special word of thanks to all the leaders who have guided this church through the long and at times painful season of transition. To the wise and thoughtful wardens and vestries, the prayerful and discerning search committee, the godly and persevering staff, and your extraordinarily insightful and loving priest in charge, Mary Hayes. I have the deepest gratitude and appreciation for you all. Now a word about this sermon. The readings we just heard are those appointed for the institution of a rector, and they're different from the normal readings in the lectionary for this Sunday in the church year. At the 745 service, we were to read those other readings, and so I prepared a different sermon for that service. However, at 4 o'clock this morning, I began to sense from the Lord that it was, in fact, that 745 sermon that I should preach at this service, <laughs> and not the one that I wrote based on the passage on the book of Joshua about the transition of leadership from Moses to the young Joshua. Now, this isn't the first time in my ministry when the Lord has moved me at the last minute to set aside what he made clear was the wrong sermon. And I learned a long time ago that obeying the Holy Spirit often feels like stepping out off the edge of a cliff. But the Lord is good, and he is faithful, and he carries us along when we trust him. So here goes. The New Testament reading uh, that we read at the earlier service, in which you did not hear, uh, is from Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 4. And in it, Paul writes to Timothy, his younger disciple, and speaks of the transformation that comes when Jesus is at work in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul says about his own experience, 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning at verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Now that wasn't pride. Paul wasn't boasting. He knew the mercy and love of Jesus. You might recall that in his first letter to Timothy, Paul called himself the worst of sinners. And yet here he says that the crown of righteousness awaits him. Both were true. Because he was a sinner saved by grace through God's unmerited favor, not through anything he had done, 
but only through Jesus. And that's why he could say, as he does back in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. But consider Paul's past. Paul had been a proud Pharisee, zealous for God, but dangerously wrongheaded. He was a vicious persecutor of Christians. He plotted and schemed to arrest Christians and have them executed. He described himself as a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. Yet on the road to Damascus, Jesus met him and confronted him. Paul turned from his sin and experienced forgiveness of all that he'd done. But he experienced more than forgiveness of his guilt. He experienced healing from guilt's hidden companion, shame. I first met my friend Gene when he came to lead the men's retreat for the church I served in Dale City. Gene told us his story of being molested and then exposed to pornography as a young boy, becoming addicted to porn. Being a good Christian boy, he tried to stop, but he would find himself drawn back to it again and again. Over the years, the images weren't enough, and he began to be drawn into the seamy world of so-called adult entertainment. By then, he was a pastor and serving a local church. But his secret addiction and secret sins only increased. As Gene expressed it, shame told me I was unworthy, I was dirty, I was disgusting, I was not worth loving or protecting. Finally, he acted out in a way that got him arrested. He lost everything, his ministry, his family, and he went to prison. But God wasn't done with him. Through a godly man who discipled him and led him through a deep work of healing, Gene discovered a calling to reach men and women caught in addiction and sexual brokenness. He has spoken to more than 60,000 college students about the addictive power and harm of pornography. He told me students will line up until 3 in the morning just to talk with him after his address. Because even as teenagers, they've always already experienced such deep sexual brokenness. Gene's testimony and his ministry have touched so many lives. And as Gene came to understand, shame is not the same thing as guilt. Guilt is what I rightly feel when I've done something bad. But shame is believing that I am bad. Guilt says you did something wrong. And shame says, that's why you need to hide. You're no good. Shame is not just a feeling. Shame is a deep-seated belief that constantly wears away at our sense of worth. Shame is always hammering us with the burden of our past, our sins and failures, our inadequacy on the job, the secrets in our families. Shame tells us that if anyone found out what we're really like, we'd be rejected. Guilt shows us where we need to confess so that we can be forgiven for our sins, but shame keeps us and our sin locked away in the darkness. As psychologist Kurt Thompson points out in his amazing book, The Soul of Shame, 
the parts of us that feel most broken and that we keep most hidden are the parts that contain our shame. And these are the parts that most desperately need to be opened before God so that he can show us his love and he can bring us his healing. I once took a continuing education seminar on alcoholism and addiction. We were being taught about shame, and it was pretty intense. To illustrate the point, and perhaps in the hope of lightening the heaviness in the room, the trainer invited someone to volunteer to share a story of their most embarrassing moment in life. An intensive care unit nurse volunteered. And she told us about the time she was driving home from work. She said she was still wearing her scrubs, which their staff was not supposed to do. And she said that might have contributed to her I'm out to save the world mentality. As she was driving, she came upon the scene of a terrible car accident. Wrecked cars were everywhere. Bodies were in the street. A paramedic was doing CPR on a guy lying on the pavement. As she screeched to a halt, she said she could instinctively tell that the paramedic did not know what he was doing. So she threw open the car door, ran over, knocked the paramedic off the guy, thumped his chest, at which point the guy on the ground sat up and someone yelled, cut, where did she come from? <laughs> They were filming a scene from the streets of San Francisco. <laughs> now, that nurse was embarrassed to be sure, but shame goes far beyond being embarrassed about what we've done. Shame says what we've done defines who we are. We're bad. We're no good. We're irredeemable. We're beyond hope. Guilt and shame are connected, but they're not the same thing. And in the same way, forgiveness and healing are connected, but they're not the same thing either. We can confess our sin and accept forgiveness for what we have done and yet still be held captive by shame. We still need God's healing grace to set us free from shame. The Bible is so very clear about this, even though we often miss it. Our culture is a guilt and forgiveness culture. Guilt and forgiveness is the primary lens through which we see our misdeeds and the misdeeds of others. But the Bible is set in a shame and honor culture. And so we sometimes overlook the dimension of shame and healing that's there in the biblical story. In the parable of the prodigal son, the younger brother who has so grievously dishonored his father and wasted it as inheritance and selfishness and immorality, the younger son comes home, comes to himself, and then returns home. And the father sees him coming, runs to meet him, and calls for his son to be dressed in the best robe with a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. The father doesn't just say, I forgive you. And he isn't merely putting suitable clothes on him. In covering his son's rags and his bare feet, he's covering his son's shame. He's dressing him as a son so that he comes into the house forgiven and honored and restored to the family. The tax collectors and sinners who listened to Jesus' teaching on this 
were, as they heard it, they must have wondered in their hearts, could God forgive even me? Would he cover my shame? Would God welcome me? One of our clergy told me very recently about a visitor to his church. She seemed out of place and ill at ease. The priest spoke with her, and it turned out she was a Muslim who had been through a humiliating divorce. She relayed that she had had a dream, and in her dream she saw Jesus appear bathed in light. She said Jesus reached out and took her hand and said to her, you do not need to be ashamed anymore. And then she turned to the priest and asked, why would he say that to me? And he shared the gospel with her. And it wasn't long before she was baptized. Romans 8, chapter 1 says, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you put your trust in Jesus, if you turn away from your sin, confess it to Jesus, and ask for his forgiveness, you are forgiven, and your shame is taken away. There is no condemnation for you who have surrendered your life to Christ. When Paul said, I am not ashamed, he was most assuredly not saying, I have nothing to be ashamed of. Quite the opposite. His past was full of the shameful things he had done. But Jesus covered those with the blood he shed for Paul on the cross. Paul wasn't proud of his sinful past, but neither was he trying to cover it up. God's mercy transformed Paul's shameful past into a glorious testimony of God's goodness and love. By God's grace, even our most grievous sins and our deepest wounds become our testimony to God's forgiveness and healing. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But there is also to be no condemning of others. In the story of the prodigal son, there's also that judgmental older brother. And the older brother, just like the younger son, believed that you get what you deserve. And that attitude is in the hearts of a lot of us church folk. It is all too tempting to think that somehow we deserve to be forgiven. But there are some other really bad people who should be condemned and sent straight to hell. When you see someone who's living far from God, do you hope they get what they deserve? Or do you long for them to turn to Christ and find the mercy that you've experienced in him? Do you hope they'll repent and be forgiven? Or would you just rather they got punished? I'm sure a number of you at some point have gotten a letter calling you to jury duty, perhaps for a local trial or even in federal court. I've not been summoned to jury duty, but I did once get a letter from my county government informing me that I had been appointed condemnation commissioner for the coming year. <laughs> That's right, condemnation commissioner, meaning me. As it happened, I was never called into service during that year. But the condemnation commissioner had a particular role. If the county were to take a private property for public use, like a road or some other purpose, and the property owner fought the takeover or wouldn't accept the amount paid, 
the owner could appeal to the county condemnation commissioner for a judgment. Well, let's be clear. You and I have not been appointed God's condemnation commissioner. We are not to judge other people as unworthy of forgiveness, as if somehow we thought we were worthy. There is no condemnation for us or for anyone else who puts their trust in Jesus and confesses their sins. God doesn't forgive any of us because of any merit on our part. What I've done doesn't somehow make me worthy of being forgiven. It's not our goodness that makes us worthy. It's what Jesus has done for us that makes us worthy. Many years ago when Meg and I were buying a house for the first time and only time, I was really concerned about how much to offer for this place. I mean, how much was this house actually worth? And so I asked our realtor, how much is this house worth? And he said, John, you need to understand, this house is worth whatever someone is willing to pay for it. (laughs) Well, you and I are of infinite worth because Jesus paid for us with his life offered for us on the cross. The Bible says you are not your own. You were bought with a price. My friend Bishop Bill Murdoch for many years pastored a church north of Boston. The church was trying to get the money that it needed to buy a house for the church's assistant rector to live in. And as Bill was praying, he felt the Holy Spirit remind him about the painting. Well, He knew what that meant. The church had an old painting of a Madonna and child, Mary and the baby Jesus. No one liked it. It was ornate and overdone, and so it was stuck away in the back of a closet in Bill's office with a sheet of newsprint over it to protect it. But, he thought, nudged by the spirit, maybe it's worth something. Let's find out what that might be. So he gave it to a parishioner a retired Marine who didn't know anything about art, but he was a good sport, and he took it to some place in New Hampshire and came back and reported that they said it wasn't worth anything. Well, Bill didn't feel quite right about that, so he said, take it to Harvard. So he took it to Harvard, and Harvard said it wasn't worth much of anything. Bill still didn't feel right about that, so he said, take it to Christie's, the famous auction house, and so he did. The next day, Bill got a phone call. The man said, my name is so-and-so, and I'm the head of the old master's division of Christie's, and I'd like to come and see your painting. Really, Bill said, where are you calling from? London. <laughs> when do you want to come and see the painting? Tomorrow. <laughs> well, the man came and looked at the painting. It was painted on wood. And Bill showed him some preliminary artist sketches that were on on the back that had been incorporated into the painting on the front. The man was very interested in that. And then finally he said, this painting is hanging in the National Gallery of Canada in Toronto. But we'd always known it had been copied. And Bill said, you mean this is a copy of a famous painting? The man said, no, this is the original. The copy is in the National Gallery. It had been painted by Andrea del Sarto in the 1500s. 
and it ended up selling at auction for $1.1 million. Something is worth whatever someone is willing to pay for it, whether it's hidden in a closet or hung in the National Gallery. And you are of infinite worth because of the price Jesus paid for you. Like the Apostle Paul and like my friend Gene, our life is no longer to be shrouded in shame and hidden in darkness. God's great desire is for us to know our true value in spite of all the sins we've done, all the lies we've believed, so that we are not ashamed and we become a shining testimony of God's healing grace. I believe that through God's abundant mercy and his glorious healing power, that is becoming Truro's testimony as well. That out of the brokenness and the shame of the past, God's transforming love is bringing forth in this church such a sweet and humble spirit, a new wholeness, and a new joy. And for each of you personally, don't let guilt or shame or a judgmental spirit keep you in darkness. Turn to the Lord who sees you and knows you as you really are. He declares to you that you are of infinite worth. Come to this table to receive his body and blood. Come to Jesus for the forgiveness and the healing that he longs for you to experience today and forever. Now, Jamie, would you please stand? I have a verse of scripture for you as you begin your ministry as rector. It's Acts 4.31. When they had prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I praise God that when I speak with you, Jamie, it seems like you're always talking about prayer, about this church's intercessors, or about seeking the Lord in prayer, about what you've heard from the Lord in prayer, how the Lord has answered prayer. Keep on praying, my brother. Pray, pray, pray. Continue to lead this church in spirit-led and spirit-filled worship. God has given you such a passion for the presence of God. Keep on seeking him with all your heart and lead your people into an ever deeper intimacy with him. And preach the word with boldness, however inadequate you may know yourself to be. Charles Spurgeon, the renowned London pastor, considered by many to be the greatest preacher of the 19th century, um, humbly said this about the power of God working through the likes of him. Spurgeon said, I have often been surprised at the mercy of God to myself. Poor sermons of mine that I could cry over when I got home have led scores to the cross. And more wonderfully still, words that I have spoken in ordinary conversations, mere chance sentences, as men call them, have nevertheless been as winged arrows from God 
and have pierced men's hearts and laid them wounded at Jesus' feet. I have often lifted up my hands in astonishment and said, how can God bless such a feeble instrumentality? How amazing that God delights to use the likes of us. God has given you a pastor's heart to love and shepherd your people. Trust the Holy Spirit who is at work in you and so beautifully through you. Be bold and let the urgency of the gospel be manifest as you proclaim Jesus and lead this church out in mission. Jamie, we love you, we support you, and we pray God's richest blessings upon you and your family and your ministry this day and always. Amen. As we prepare to sing in response the song which Jamie chose under the leading of the Spirit without any insight into what God was doing in me in this sermon, we're soon to sing, Is He Worthy? (laughs) But would you just take a minute to just sit and pray and give thanks to God for his call upon Jamie and just be in prayer for him as we prepare to continue in worship.